the Book of Judges, a dark time in Israel's history, a pattern of failure, failure to follow God's law, failure to train up the next generation, failure to remember and celebrate God's faithfulness. We may be tempted to see the judges as heroes of the faith. However, the only hero of this story is God himself. The people of God chose the pleasures of sin over the promises of God, and the story of Judges is our story as well. In a desperately wicked and fallen world, the book of Judges reveals both the disgrace of sin and the deliverance only God can provide. Every now and then, I see um, something on social media that catches my eye, and it's, they typically will, someone will post a picture, and then they'll ask a question, what do you see, right? And then it, it, allegedly, this, what you see in this picture determines some aspect of your personality, and I don't put a lot of stock into it, and quite often I usually just flip by them, but every now and then I'm bored and I need some sort of mental stimulation, and so I'll click on it. And that's what happened to me this week, and I saw this picture. It was this picture, and it was, what do you see? So here's my, oh, I heard. So someone said, I see a praying mantis. Well, I showed this picture to Jamie, our ministry support director, our overall superwoman in the office, and current worship leader this morning, because Tyler wanted to go and have a baby. Actually, Tyler's wife wanted to go have a baby. You're welcome, Ronnie. And she saw a praying mantis. And here's what this article, if you saw the first thing that pops out is a praying mantis, listen to what this says about those people, allegedly. Those who first spot the praying mantis has a deeply rooted need for peace, quiet, and calm. These are people who have been overwhelmed by chaos and noise from outside of themselves and have no choice but to learn how to tune out the external. I thought, boy, what a fitting response to the one who runs our church office. All right. Now, others of you might have seen a wolf. Who saw a wolf? Okay, that's what I saw. I saw a wolf. Here's what allegedly that means about you. Wolves show themselves to us in times when we need to be reminded that while we are a civilized creatures, we, are, we all occasionally need to honor the impulses of our wild inner spirit. Yeah. <laughs> if the wolf caught your eye, listen to this. This is, this is why I'm using this because I like this about myself. If the wolf caught your eye, you are a highly organized individual who understands the balance between harmony and discipline. <laughs> You're welcome. Now, I got to ask, how many of you saw a rooster? Uh, Jacob, did I see you raise your hand over there? Okay, rooster. A couple of you saw a rooster. Here's what a rooster says. Jacob, I'm sorry. If you first notice the rooster, you are someone who shares their enthusiasm for showing off their magnificence to full advantage. You love to strut your stuff, but you bring plenty to the table to back it up. And there's many other uh, pictures you can see. But again, don't panic if you don't like what this said about you. It, It probably means nothing, but I love this because... Sometimes multiple people look at one picture and see different things. And I think that's true about the book of Judges. 
So many people have read the book of Judges and some of us focus on the brokenness of the people. Others of us focus on the type of leaders that God uses and raises from the gutter to rescue his people. And as we're distracted and looking at all these different things, so often we miss one of the most important themes of Judges. As we just focus on the disgrace of sin, we oftentimes miss the deliverance of God. And that's what I want to make sure that you see, especially in the days of Gideon. Gideon is one of the most popular and famous judges, and his people are focusing on the brokenness of the people and the flaws of Gideon so often they miss. Three important lessons and attributes of God. So if you join me, let me show you. I want to show you Judges chapter 6. It's the seventh book of the Bible. Now, over the last couple of weeks, I've been saying it's the fifth book of the Bible. I don't know I've been saying that. It judges as the seventh book of the Bible. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. I want to clear that up just in case you keep turning to Deuteronomy and wondering where we are. So we're in Judges, the seventh book of the Old Testament. Judges chapter 6. It begins this way. Judges chapter 6, starting at verse 1. It says, Then the sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hands of Midian seven years. And again, those of you who have been with me throughout the first five chapters, this is like old news. It's like a recurring theme. Every time the people of God, they do evil, wickedness in the sight of the Lord, in front of his very eyes. And as a result, the Lord does what he promised he would do. He gave them into the hands of Midian for seven years. Let's keep going. The power of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of Midian, the sons of Israel made for themselves the dens which were in mountains and caves and strongholds. For it was when Israel had sown that the Midianites would come up from the Amalekites and the sons of the east and go against them. They would camp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel as well as no sheep, ox, or donkey. For they would come up with their livestock in their tents. They would come in like locusts for number, but they and their camels were innumerable, and they came into the land to devastate it. So Israel was brought very low because of Midian, and the sons of Israel cried out to the Lord. Right, so here we are again. People do wickedness in the eyes of God, and as a result, God sells them in to Midian. Again, everyone's like, ah, no big deal, Brian, we've been through this a number of times, but something should be standing out to you, and that's the depth that Israel has sunk. Let me remind you of what God promised the people of God before they entered into the promised land. Put your thumb in Judges and turn back to the real fifth book of the Bible, book of Deuteronomy, chapter 7. Deuteronomy, chapter 7, verse 12. As God's people were preparing to go into the promised land, this, these were the promises of God. Now, I want to make sure that you see this so you understand the depths that they've gone down. Deuteronomy 7, verse 12, God said this, Then it shall come about, because you listen to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord your God will keep with you his covenant, his loving kindness, which he swore to your forefathers. He will love you and bless you and multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb, the fruit of your ground, your grain, your new wine, your oil, the increase of your herd, the young of your flock, in the land which he swore to your forefathers to give you. 
You shall be blessed above all peoples. There will be no male or female barren among you or among your cattle. The Lord will remove from you all sickness. He will put on you, he will not put on you any harmful diseases out of Egypt, which you have known, but you will lay them on all who hate you. You shall consume all the peoples whom the Lord your God will deliver to you. Your eyes shall not pity them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. I mean, God promises the people, I'm going to give you this land flowing of milk and honey if you honor me, if you obey me, if you will just follow me, if you'll just stick with me. Everyone will have a fruitful job. Everyone will experience success. Everyone will experience the love of a family. There'll be no COVID restrictions ever. No horrific cancer treatments. No fearful doctor visits. And in every path you go forward, you can be confident in victory because God's going to lay out everything for you. That was the promise that God had if you'll only obey. Now let's go back and let's look at Judges 6. This is just Judges 6. We haven't even made it to the middle of the book. Judges 6. There's so much disgrace of sin. The end of verse 5, he says the Midianites would come in and devastate it. That term devastate means to spoil, ruin, completely destroy just for clarity, that word devastate is the same word God used to describe the earth after the flood. That's the magnitude of devastation in this land. If you go back up to verse 2, the power of Midian prevailed against Israel because Midian, the sons of Israel, made for themselves the dens which were in mountains and caves and strongholds. The people of God end up living in caves. They got chased out of their land. They carved out little holes in the mountain and lived there. You go down to the very bottom, verse 6. So Israel was brought very low. That's Bible talk, for they were driven to poverty. They were exceedingly weak. They were emaciated. They were languishing with no hope. And just recognize how far Israel has fallen from the promise of God to the reality of their life. And that's the setting for the days of Gideon. But you'll be tempted in the days of Gideon in these stories to focus so much on the disgrace of their sin that you miss lessons about God. That's what I'll help you see today. Look what happens, continues in verse 7. Israel is now to their lowest point. At that point, verse, verse 7, this happens. Now it came about when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord. Remember, that doesn't mean repent. That doesn't mean we're sorry. That just means you're crying out in pain. They're wailing to God. This is horrible. This hurts. They cried out to the Lord on account of Midian, verse 8, that the Lord sent the prophet to the sons of Israel, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, It was I who brought you up from Egypt and brought you out from the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians, from the hand of all your oppressors, and disposed them before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you live, but you have not obeyed me. 
At their darkest, deepest point, Israel cries out to God, and God's response, not my problem. I gave you everything. You weren't faithful. This is what you get. And if you're reading Judges for the first time, you're thinking, finally, God learned his lesson. God's finally going to ignore these people. He's finally recognizing the disgrace of their sin. I'm done. I'm out. Right after this, look at verse 11. First word, then. In Hebrew, that's that wah again, means directly after what happened before. So right when you think God is going to wipe his hands with them, I'm done. You brought this on yourself. Cry me a river, I'm out. Just when you think God's finished, then this happens. Then, right after God gave that message, verse 11, then the angel of the Lord came, sat under the oak that was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joaph the Abrazite, as his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress in order to save it from the Midianites. The angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. And Gideon said to him, Oh, my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The Lord looked at him and said, Go, into your, go in your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? Gideon said to him, O oh Lord, how should I deliver Israel? Behold, my family is the least of Manasseh, and I'm the youngest in my father's house. But the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you and you shall defeat Midian as one man. So Gideon sent to him, said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign. It is you who speak with me. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Man, there's so much in there. We're going to spend a bulk of our time in this portion of the passage, and then we're going to have to fly through the rest. But there's so much in here. I want to make sure you understand. See, right at the depths of their sin, where they've fallen as far down as they could imagine, first thing we learn about God is the presence of God was there. We learn some about the presence of God in this segment. Again, and I want to make sure you understand, there's two words that are here that you really need to understand, and they sound the same in English, Lord. But in your Bible, most likely, there's one Lord in all caps, and there's one Lord with a capital L and lowercase ord. That's because there's two different words in the Hebrew. Lord in all capitals, that's Yahweh personal name of the Almighty God. The other Lord, the capital L and lowercase O-R-D, is the Hebrew word Adonai, which means great one, master, or formal greeting for someone better than you, sir. So let me help you understand. See, the first couple times you see this, it's the word Yahweh. Verse 11, then the angel of the Lord, Yahweh. And again, remember before I told you that's the pre-incarnate Jesus. That's Jesus before he came in and took on human flesh. Then the angel of the Lord came and sat under the oak 
Right? Verse 12, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. All of those times in verse 11 and 12, that word Lord should be all capitalized in your Bible. It's Yahweh. The angel of Yahweh, the angel of Yahweh, Yahweh is with you. But then verse 13, Gideon says, O my Lord, lowercase Lord. O sir, I recognize you're bigger than me. I don't know who you are. Oh, Lord, if then the next one is capitalized. You see that? Oh, sir, if Yahweh was really with us, verse 13, Gideon has no idea who he's talking to. In the midst of his depravity, in the midst of his brokenness, this is what he's saying to God. He doesn't even know it. Verse 13, Gideon says, oh, my Lord, if God is with us, why has all this happened to us? And were all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, did not God bring us up from Egypt? There's another capital Lord. But now the Lord, God, Yahweh, all capitals, has abandoned us and given us into the hand of Midian. The angel of the Lord, pre-incarnate Jesus, comes and says, I'm here in the midst of it. He says, where? Man, if God was with us, my life would be better. If God was with it, my family would be better. If God was here, my kids would be better. If God was here, my state wouldn't be as nutty. No way. God's abandoned me right here. Anyone feel that way? In the midst of the darkness and brokenness of your life, surely God abandoned me. Surely there's no hope. If God was here, my life would be better. If God was here, my marriage would be better. If God was here, my kids would be better. If God was here, my community would be better. If God was here, my pastor would be better. Listen to response. Gideon still doesn't know who he's talking to. Verse 14. All of a sudden, we lose the angel part, and it's just the Lord. Now, look at this. Lord, all caps. The Lord looked at him. I mean, God is looking at him and said, go in this your strength and deliver Israel from the hand of Midian. Have I not sent you? I love God's response. God says, hey, I'm with you, Gideon. Gideon's like, what? Where? I don't see God. God left me. God responds to Gideon, go fix it then. You're not happy with your marriage? Go fix it. Your kids are wayward? Go get them. Your pastor's nutty? Take him out to dinner. <laughs> it's just in the text. I'm just preaching the text. <laughs> Lord said, I've sent you. Go do it. And just in case you think that Gideon's more spiritually mature than you, look at his response. He said to him, verse 15, he said to him, O Lord, lowercase, right? O sir, how should I deliver Israel? Behold, surprise. Hey, just in case you missed it, I'm a nobody. I'm the youngest of the family. Who's the weakest in the tribe? Who's the weakest in all of Israel? Like I'm the weakest of the weakest of the weak. I'm nobody. I'm powerless. I can't do it. 
Just in case you wonder where that behold, like, hey, he's acting a little bit aggro here. Look back at verse 12. Look how God, look how God, what God called Gideon. At the end of verse 12, the Lord is with you, O valiant warrior. That's how God addressed Gideon. O valiant warrior, God is with you. Gideon says, um, just in case you think you're talking to someone else, I'm no valiant warrior. I'm not a strong leader. I'm not a good father. I'm not a great pastor. I'm a broken person. I'm afraid. Just think, God, you're seeing someone different. Ever feel like sometimes God sees you differently than you see you? God says, Gideon, I'm going to do something amazing in you. Gideon's like, nope, not me. Wrong guy. I'm nothing. By the way, he still doesn't know who he's talking to. And again, when we start thinking about the Old Testament version of God, right, that we have in our head, we start backing away. Oh, God's going to smoke him right now. That's why we have that big biblical but, first word in verse 16. But the Lord said to him, look what God says. Gideon says, I'm weak. I'm nothing. I have all these flaws, all of these issues. I have no opportunity. I have no money to back it up. The Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. And you shall defeat Midian as one man. And all of a sudden, the lights come on with Gideon. He starts thinking, oh no. Verse 17, Gideon said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, show me a sign that is you who speak with me. Gideon starts thinking, ooh, I think this is more than just some like fancy guy. Please do not depart from here until I come back to you and bring out my offering and lay it before you. And he said, I will remain until you return. Verse 19, then Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. He put the meat in a basket and a broth in a pot and brought them out to him under the oak and presented them. Man, I know there's some people say, Brian, how can you be sure that the angel of the Lord means the pre-incarnate Jesus right there? with all these different words and all these different lords. Is it Yahweh or Adonai or is it a fancy guy or is it God? How do we know? Gideon says, oh my gosh, I think I'm talking to God. Hold on right there, God, don't move. I'm gonna go get an offering. This wasn't just some snack. This is a time where people were hiding in the hills. They were living in caves. There was no food. It was back at the beginning of the pandemic. The shelves are bare. And he brings out an ephah of flour. That's enough flour to feed a large family for days. He brings that out. He brings a young goat. Takes an hour preparing all this stuff. Brings it to this man as an offering. Look what happens, verse 20. Then the angel of God said to him, take the meat, the unleavened bread, lay them on this rock, Pour out the broth. He did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread. Poof. A fire sprang up from the rock, consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. Then the angel of the Lord vanished from his sight. 
You want proof that that was God? He accepted that offering in miraculous fashion. Remind me, there was another time good man who loves Jesus came face to face with someone who he thought was spectacular, opened his eyes to all sorts of things. It was the Apostle John in Revelation. Look what happened in Revelation 22. Put it on the screen. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. When I heard and saw, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed me these things. But he, the angel, said to me, do not do that. I'm a fellow servant of yours and of your brother and the prophets and of those who heed the words of this book. You worship God. If this was just some angel, Gideon would have heard that. It wasn't. It's the presence of God. They're in the midst of their darkest spot where they were low, sold into oppression because of the disgrace of their sin. Gideon feels like God abandoned them. It's so bad. Little did Gideon know God was right there. Look at the result. Verse 23, the Lord said to him, oh, look at verse 22. Gideon saw that. He was the angel of the Lord. He was the pre-incarnate Christ. He said, alas, that's Hebrew for holy cow. O Lord God, Lord God, Adonai, Yahweh, he put them together. Throughout the text in front, the Bible was using the term Yahweh. Gideon was using the term Adonai. The Bible kept saying God. Gideon kept saying Sir. Brings it together in the Hebrew text. Nope, same one. Alas, holy cow, O Lord God, for now I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. The Lord said to him, Peace to you. Do not fear. You shall not die. The term peace, complete peace, contentment in life that comes from a complete state of mind. Right there, the worst spot where they feared God's judgment. They assumed God's abandonment. God was right there in the midst of it. And when it's all over, what did God say? Peace. Peace I give to you. My peace I leave with you. Not as the world gives peace. As only God can give peace. Unless you think, oh man, I wish I was Gideon. I wish I could have peace like that. Brian, I'm in the midst of it. My life is falling apart. I am in the pit of darkness. I don't think God's with me. I need that. Let me remind you of what the Apostle Paul said. To God's people, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. 
Man, we get so caught up in the judges and then their brokenness. Sometimes we miss a powerful lesson about God that when everything was at their worst, God was there. I know there might be someone here who thinks God abandoned them. Maybe your home is too broken. You've blown it too much. God can't have time for you. He's given up on you. He has abandoned you. He has left you. Maybe you look at our great state and think, man, how did we get here? God has left us. He's abandoned us. We're doomed. He's moved on to states like Arizona and Florida. <laughs> is it possible that God is still here? Offering you his peace and telling you, Go fix it. Have I not sent you? Save your marriage. Go get your kids. Transform your community. Because God is still here. All right, well, now that I spent pretty much my whole sermon time on that, we have two more things I want to show you about God. After we learn about the presence of God, we see some great things about the character of God. Because look what happens right next. After they have this great kumbaya moment, a great come to Jesus time right there in the midst of darkness, God's given Gideon peace. Look at verse 25. Now on that same night, man, God does not waste his time. Moss does not grow on that guy. After all this, Gideon's crying. This is a great thing. Wow, God's present with me. God then says, all right, boy, get up. Here's we go. Now on that same night, the Lord said to him, now take your father's bull and a second bull, seven years old, pull down the altar of Baal, which belongs to your father, cut down the Asherah that is beside it, and you build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this stronghold in an orderly manner and take a second bull and offer a burnt offering with the wood of the Asherah which you've cut down. He says, all right, Gideon, now we had this great moment. Great, get to work. All those idols from your father's house that's led all these people into idolatry, pull it down. The term pull doesn't mean, ah, just give it a good push. It's one of my favorite words in Hebrew. It means to destroy, smash, pulverize. Man, push that Bull over, knock that pole over. I want you to cut it up into mulch. Flatten it out there on top and you build an altar. And you go take some prize stuff from your dad's house. I don't want the cheap stuff from your house. I want the expensive stuff. And you sacrifice it to me. I'm owning this spot. And sometimes... God needs to make sure you not only understand about his presence, but understand the character of God as well. I mean, God is a jealous God. He does not share your heart. If you're wanting God to do things in your life, his peace in God and have things transform, man, you can't share. God says, knock everything else down. Mow it down, chisel it down, make it into wood chips, and then you build a church on top of that. 
And I want you to sacrifice for me. Man, God is jealous. Great verse. Shouldn't be news to them in Exodus. Look what it says. God said to them, you shall not worship them or serve them, talking about other idols, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but show loving kindness to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. They were raised up to think that jealousy is wrong. I want to tell you, I think jealousy in a committed relationship is right. And God loves you so much he doesn't share. My wife got a new puppy. It's amazing how patient and affectionate my wife can be to a little puppy. (laughs) And how jealous a 49-year-old man can be of a little dog. Let me ask you, is that sinful or righteous? I don't like to share my wife's heart, not even with a seven-pound Yorkie. (laughs) Same is true with God. He doesn't want to share your affection. Not with an idol, not with a career, not with Patrick Mahomes. I'll get you out by noon, but just trying to be clear. First thing you need to know about the character of God, he's jealous. He tells Gideon, knock that stuff down and build me an altar. You can keep reading if you want all the details. He does so in the cover of night, but he does it. People get mad. Then verse 33, we see the next truth about the character of God. Verse 33 of chapter 6. Then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the sons of East assembled themselves and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. Man, it's about to get real. Verse 34, so the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. He blew a trumpet. The Abizrites were called together to follow him. He sent messengers throughout Manasseh and they were called together to follow him. And he sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. Next thing about the character of God, he is forgiving. After all this going on with the people, they're at their lowest because they sold themselves into slavery. I mean, Gideon, Gideon's family worshiped idols. God came in, met with him. All right, mow those down, right the ship, and then the presence of God fell upon Gideon, covered him like a cloak. And the way the Hebrew is, is in here, it's because of the Spirit of the Lord that when Gideon blew the trumpet, all these people came. Gideon blows the trumpet without the presence of the Lord, pfft, nothing. People responded because of the presence of the Lord on Gideon. My question is, do you think God can forgive Gideon and use him? Why not you? Again, maybe this is just something unique to Gideon. Maybe God just had, he just really liked Gideon. I don't think so. Look elsewhere in scripture, Psalm 86, 5. Psalmist says, for you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to 
all who call upon you. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Paul says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we are at the worst and the depths of our sin, Christ responded. Now, I don't think this is something just for Gideon. This is for everybody. God is jealous. He is forgiving. One last one. He is patient. Look at verse 36. Again, after that great, powerful, I mean, God and Jesus are present right there with Gideon in the midst of his brokenness. They forgive him. He covers himself with the presence of God. You'd think Gideon would be like, all right, let's go. This is amazing. But look at Gideon. Verse 36, then Gideon, after all that amazing stuff, wah, right after that, then Gideon said to God, um, I'm still not sure if you're in this to win it, God. If you will deliver Israel through me, as you have spoken. Behold, surprise, love that. God, not something you're expecting. Behold, surprise, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so. When he arose early in the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, sorry about this. Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, and let there be dew on the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and dew was on the ground. And see, so often we turn this into some sort of strategy on how to determine the will of God. God opened a door so big, opened a window so small, all those things. We put all these fleeces and signs. I want to make sure you're clear. Contrary to popular belief, this is not a biblical method for determining the will of God. This is not here to tell you, here's how you determine what God wants. God's telling you what he wants. Gideon already knew what God wanted. Hey, God, I know what you're saying. If you meant it. I love this. I read someone who said this said, this is not a biblical method for determining the will of God. Instead, this is a method for demonstrating man's lack of faith and demonstrating God's patience. This is not a way you're supposed to do it. If you want to learn anything from this, you should learn about man's lack of faith and God's patience. Despite Gideon's continued lack of faith, God plays along demonstrating another part of his character. He is slow to wrath. He is slow to anger. He is quick to forgive. Going to the last part of last lesson. This chapter seven, and don't freak out, we're almost done. Chapter seven is what I call the battle of God. We've learned about the character of God. We've learned about the presence of God. This is the battle of God. Finally, we're here. The Midianites come down. They're like locusts. There's so many of them. They just destroy the fields. They consume all the food. Verse 7, then 
Jerubbabel, that is Gideon, and all the people who were with him rose early and camped beside the spring of Herod, and the camp of Midian was on the north side of them by the hill of Moreh in the valley. Verse 2, I love this. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give Midian into your hands. You got too many people, Gideon. Why? For Israel would become boastful, saying, my own power has delivered me. Gideon's probably like, yeah, that's true. God's like, just to make sure everyone knows this is my battle, it's not your battle. It's by my power, not by yours. By my might, not by yours. God says, this is my battle. Verse three, now therefore come, proclaim in the hearing of the people, saying, whoever is afraid and trembling, let him go home. Look at that. So 22,000 people left. 22,000 people, more than two-thirds of the group. Gideon says, all right, if you're afraid, kind of nervous about this, you can leave. Everybody goes, just about, more than two-thirds. You might think, well, that's kind of weird. That's been God's directions from the very start. Again, let me show you Deuteronomy chapter 20 when God was teaching his people about battle. Look at what he said. Deuteronomy 20, verse 1, when you go out to battle against your enemies and see horses and chariots and people more numerous than you, do not be afraid of them, for the Lord your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt is with you. He goes through a couple rules. He gets to verse 8. Then the officer shall speak further to the people and say, who is the man that is afraid and faint-hearted? Same word as shaking. Let him depart and return to his house. Why? So that he might not make his brother's hearts melt like his. I don't want any leaders on the battle who are afraid. Why? Because you're going to get other people all stirred up. God says, I'd rather do it on my own than have you come and make it harder. If you're afraid, adios. God set that up. This isn't something new to Gideon. Gideon, number one, all those people you think you need, you don't need them. Send them on their way. He was still left with 10,000 people. Verse 4, then the Lord said to Gideon, the people are still too many. Bring them down to the water. I will test them for you there. Therefore, it shall be that he of whom I say to you, this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. But everyone whom I say to you, this one shall not go with you, he will not. Verse 5, so he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, you shall separate everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps, as well as everyone who kneels to drink. Then the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouth was 300 but all the rest of the people kneeled to drink water. The Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and who will give the Midianites into your hands. So let all the other people go, each man to his home. And we stop there and we write books about, now that's a great leadership trait. That's how you know your next pastor. That's how you know your next leader. Let them drink. If they drink with their eyes down, they're not ready. But if their feet are ready, we build all these leadership strategies around this verse, and I want to make sure you know something. All of them were afraid at this point. Look at verse 8. They started with 32,000 people. They're down to 300 people. And we picture these 300 men like that movie. These are hardened guys, and they're ready to go. Look at verse 8. So the 300 men took the people's provisions and their trumpets into their hands, and Gideon sent all the other men of Israel, each to his tent, but retained 300 men. That term retained 
forced him to stay. I mean, everyone's ready to go at this point. Everyone's ready to fight when you have 32,000 of you. God wills it down to 300. 31,700 people leave. The remaining 300 are like, okay, now I'm shaking and trembling. All of them were afraid. I mean, sometimes we get in these spots as Christians, we think, oh, I shouldn't be worried. I shouldn't be afraid. Be anxious for nothing. We don't honestly admit what's in the pit of our stomach. Where we seek to honor God and take that first step, honestly admit that we're freaked out. Man, if that's you in your life and you know God's calling you, and you know you need to take a step, it's going to be unpopular, it's going to be difficult, it's going to be challenging. Here's what I love about God, verse 9. We'll finish on this. The same night it came about, and the Lord said to Gideon, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given them into your hands. Verse 10, big biblical but. But if you're afraid, don't you love that? God knows. Hey, Gideon, just in case, wink, wink, you're a little freaked out about this whole thing. Go down, go with Purah, your servant, down to the camp, and you will hear what they say, and afterwards your hands will be strengthened that you may go down against the camp. After all that, Gideon's still freaked out. God says, all right, I'll help you out one last time. Go down, hide behind a bush. You're going to hear two dudes talk. They're going to talk about a dream that they had, about how God is going to deliver them into your hands. And after that happened, Gideon was ready to go. When you get home during halftime, read the rest of Judges chapter 7. <laughs> the battle of God ends in miraculous fashion. God's done the same for us, you know. He's let us know how all this ends. That we're going to be victorious. That he has a plan and the power to complete it. He's let us know the battles you're fighting in life, the battles you're fighting in your marriage, the battles you're fighting with your children, the battles you're fighting in this community. They're not your battles. They're his. We don't fight battles of flesh and blood. I mean, this is bigger this is a spiritual battle. This is over people's souls. Their eyes would see the power of God as we do. The question for you and I is where do we need to trust in God's plan to complete it in us and through us? See, this isn't just a story about Gideon and God. I think it's a story about us and God as well. Don't make the story of Gideon, the days of Gideon, about a man. Make it about the presence of God. Present in their darkest hour. About the character of God. What we learned about God in the midst of that pain and suffering. And make it about the battle of God. All odds were against him. 
God made sure of that. So that every eye would see, every tongue would confess, and every knee will bow and recognize the power of God. The days of Gideon, not so unique. I think these could be the days of your life as well. The question is, how do you want to respond? Let's pray. Uh, God, again, we're grateful. We're grateful for your word that allows us to see the reality of life back then. And God, the way that your spirit uses it to expose the reality of our life still today. God, I pray for people in this room right here who are in the midst of their struggle, who feel like maybe you have abandoned them, that they've broken, they've, they've messed up too, God, too much, they've failed too much, they've fallen too far, and that perhaps you've given up on them, perhaps you've abandoned them, perhaps you have given them over. God, I pray that you open their eyes and allow them to see you as I do, the way that you allowed Gideon to see you. They would know they're not alone and that you're with them and open to restoring them if they will simply call on you. God, for others in here, God, who know you but perhaps are missing you in the midst of their struggles, for those who are fighting family issues, job issues, worry about the nature of our culture, God, I pray you'd rather focus away from the struggles of this world and open our eyes to the greatness of God in the midst of it. God, give us your spirit. Give us courage and faith, God, that we would follow you in ways you call. And give us confidence that this is your battle. God, that we are your instruments, filled with your power, destined to accomplish your will. God, you have built us for this, called us for this, equipped us, and given us your spirit for this very moment, that we would simply walk and be a reflection of your glory in the midst of this life. God, we pray you continue to transform our thinking, renew our minds, strengthen our spirit that we might be a brighter reflection of your glory this week. We pray everything in Jesus' name. Amen.